1: The content of the moment, what's going on in that moment, no matter what it is, is your awakening. It's your awakening when you're present with it.
0: Welcome to the Be Here Now guest podcast. This series features a collection of teachings and conversations centered around mindfulness, spiritual growth, and living a life in balance. Each week, our diverse network of guest teachers and hosts offer up wisdom and practices from a different spiritual path and perspective. If you would like to support this podcast, please visit BeHereNowNetwork.com slash donate. So I want to start with one of uh, my favorite stories,
1: and it's a Sufi story. About Nasruddin, the Sufi teacher, who uh, he was often disguised and his wisdom would come out in these unexpected ways. So, in this story, Nasruddin is a trader and he's trading between Persia and Turkey. He's doing business, and he's crossing the border, and he crosses the border with his string of donkeys. And the border guards would search all the saddlebags, and they would, you know, just look into the donkey's saddles to make sure what is he bringing into the country, and they would do this on each side. And they never found anything bad, so they let him in. But he was coming back and forth a lot, And he was getting really wealthy. He built a huge house. He was obviously just getting more and more prosperous. So the guards, they really thought he was smuggling. So they began to search more diligently, you know, underneath the saddle and underneath the cinch, the belt, and inside the donkey. And they could never find anything. In time, he became just like a gajillionaire. And so he stopped trading. He retired. And a couple years later, he was at the market, and he ran into a border guard who said, you know, I'm retired too, so you can tell me now. (laughs) (laughs) We knew you were smuggling. (laughs) What were you smuggling all that time? And Nasruddin looked at him and said, oh, that's easy. I can tell you. Donkeys. (laughs) So what's so great about this story? You may not yet know, but uh, what's so great about this story and why I love it (laughs) is because they were looking for jewels, drugs, money, and he was smuggling the most unglamorous thing, right? It's just donkeys. He had a very simple business. And that's what he was doing. And so to me, it's very much like our life in retreat. We are looking for luminous jewels of awakening. We hear about Buddha nature. We hear about transcendence, that one especially. And, you know, we just, we overlook the, what's actually the pay dirt in our practice the vehicle, that which is actually going to make us spiritually wealthy, strong, and contented. And so these moments that are our pay dirt, they are the moments of just being present with sitting, breath after breath, sensation after sensation. And by now the sensations are getting quite strong, aren't they? It's like the dentist, it's a little bit of discomfort, they call it. We call it strong sensation. Uh, But you know what we mean. And these moments, they're just like the donkeys. They are not romantic. They are not beautiful. They are not luminous, particularly. uh, But they do the job because we are awake for them. And we're experiencing them. These moments are carrying our awareness, which here is the gold. And suddenly, when we realize this, then the ordinary things our work meditation, pots and pans, bathrooms, not very glamorous, right? Feeding ourselves, going up. And down the hill, meditation hall to dining hall, dining hall to meditation hall to dorm, to meditation hall to, right? All the ordinary things of our life here, they're not just that. They're more than just eating and walking and sitting, though of course they are that. They are transformed into these vehicles of our spiritual wealth, our awareness, our presence, and increasingly, what I want to talk about tonight, our compassionate presence. Whatever we think about it doesn't matter. And this took me so long to understand in my practice. So if I can save you some time, you know, it's just, it took me so long to realize that I mean, this could be worth more than the $800 Pilates tip, um, a lot more. That what's happening doesn't matter. We take it very personally. It matters deeply to us, of course. But actually, it, from the point of view of the practice of our mindful awareness, our metified presence, it doesn't matter. All that matters is, do we know what's happening? Are we with it, half with it? Are we um, with it without shaming or blaming ourselves about it? That's a huge one. Without being hard on ourselves or somebody else. All that matters, actually, is the quality of our attention to it. A famous Tibetan teacher, Toku um, Urjin Rinpoche, said the price of gold goes up and down, but it doesn't matter. What do you mean by that? I think you intuit what he means by that. Whether the market price, what the world thinks of it, what we think of it, you know, whether it soars or plummets. And we know all about soaring and plummeting by now, right? It doesn't matter because it's still gold. It is still gold. And our mindfulness, our presence, our awareness, our attentiveness, our compassionate presence, all these words are pointing to the same thing. Our being is like that. It doesn't matter what we're mindful of. It could be the most sublime moment of gratitude and outpouring of love and for everything and everyone and, you know, you know those moments. If you haven't had one, you will by the end of the retreat. Everything that made it possible for us to be here. Or it could be the most petty, the most sort of loathsome, It doesn't matter which thought we're having or which feeling. It just matters that we are willing to know it, to be with it, to see it, whatever it is, as it arises and passes away in our consciousness, as it's born and lives and has its being and falls away. Just to see each experience as it's born and lives and dies. That's what matters, and of course, to see this is to see the truth of impermanence, but we don't even have to put a fancy label on it like impermanence. Just this awareness, this knowing, this being with, this showing up for our lives is the gold, and um, we take it so personally, we make it such a story about how we're doing and whether we're... You know, a good meditator, a bad one, having a good retreat. This is a good retreat, but this is a bad retreat. This one's bad. This one's worse than the last one. Maybe the next one will be better. For years, I used to, in my retreat, be planning the next retreat. Okay, so this retreat's kind of shot, but maybe the next retreat and... um Maybe the next retreat, I'll be in a yurt or I'll find a hut. That might be easier than be with all these people. And maybe that would make a difference. I don't know. But I do know that there will, you know, it, on and on. And so, I mean, it matters that we suffer. That matters to us, of course. Um, but from the point of view of the practice, it's our compassionate presence that matters, our awareness. This is the gold. So each thing that we do, each mundane thing, like, Taking off our shoes, like putting on our shoes. It becomes not just taking off our shoes and putting on our shoes, but also a vehicle to carry, to hold, to invite, uh, to represent this awareness, this knowing, this mindfulness and presence. So, this simple training. That we're teaching you just breath by breath, step by step, sound by sound, taste by taste, touch by touch. Just each thing over and over again, bringing some warmth and presence, some friendliness to your warmth and presence. Um, to the way that you're with yourself. These are your riches. These are your donkeys. Um, these are your ways to develop a compassionate presence. So now I'm going to go back. Wish me luck to find it. Yes. Okay. Early in the retreat, I know it's still early in the retreat, sort of, but we're moving into the depth of the retreat now. Early in the retreat, somebody asked, um, what can we actually count on in this life, in this practice? It was a great question. And all the traditions of Buddhism, it doesn't matter early Buddhism, late Buddhism, you know, Theravada, Mahayana, Vajrayana, it really doesn't matter, all of that, at all. Because all the traditions say that what we can count on is the same thing. In Sanskrit, it's sila, samadhi, and prajna. In English, it's the principles of ethical living, those uh, wonderful precepts that you undertook, as a training in mindfulness at the beginning of the retreat. These principles of ethical living, whichever ones you carry forth into your life, uh, samadhi, the capacity to be present, to be really here, to be absorbed wholly, fully, wholeheartedly in each moment, fully here. To, this is important to be able to focus and concentrate and be present, because out of that ability comes insight or wisdom. And the contents of wisdom is compassion. So these are the foundations. Foundations mean something we can count on, something we can actually build our lives, our um, home for the hearts on, something we can really count on. And so, I want to talk some about this compassionate presence that to me includes all these three foundations in all the three traditions. This morning, I had an experience that made me remember the couple of years I spent practicing in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, um, talking with um, Robert Thurman, who's a great professor in that tradition. And, uh, and I was remembering that in that tradition, the embodiment of compassionate presence is named Chenrezig. In Sanskrit, we would say Avalokiteshvara. In Chinese, it's Kuan Yin. In Korea, it's Kuan Se and In Japan, it's Kanon or Kanzeon. All of these beings are representations of the power of seeing. And they are all... In the Buddhist cosmology, all the various deities and beings are—they're um, just representations of our own qualities, the awakened qualities that uh, that we have in our hearts and can cultivate. So, all of these represent the power of seeing, and they're called the great compassionate ones because of their ability to see all living beings, and they never shut their eyes; their eyes are always open. They always see what's going on for each and every living being. And they're never blind to, they never turn away from, they never ignore. The conditions are the suffering of any living being, near or far, large or small, everyone without exception. These beings perceive their situation with utterly compassionate presence. When I hear this, it makes me think of God. God. You know, wouldn't it be nice? Like We just don't imagine that there actually is somebody up there looking at us that way, but wouldn't it be nice if there were? And the trouble with this tradition is that the responsibility rests with us to connect with these qualities, to cultivate them in our own hearts, to offer them to one another. This is really important because we know now with mirror neurons that one compassionate being can really spread that light to others. Uh, So anyway, they look upon each and every being and they see the great troubles experienced by us living beings and all the different kinds of miseries and sufferings and they never close their eyes. And they offer compassionate presence to the point where, and we've all felt this, just tears come to our eyes. Often this happens, just tears come to our eyes seeing the sufferings of living beings or of one another. So why don't we feel this so much for our own suffering? Why is it so much harder here in retreat to feel this toward ourselves? Today, in one of our small groups, somebody experienced some transformation in her own um, Compassionate presence and and she asked, How can we have that this compassionate presence for ourselves? How can we do that? This is another great question. I really love your questions. <laughs> they are great questions. All the Buddhist practices are about getting intimately acquainted, familiarizing getting able to tolerate the intimate, close, raw, naked experience of life. And we need practices to help us connect to our own humanity in all its fullness. And after all, our own humanity is the only bridge that we have to cross to experiences of Spacious awareness of love, of wisdom, compassion, and so forth. I mean, this body, yes, it's our body, but it's more than that. It's our vehicle for awakening, just like putting on our shoes or taking them off. Working with you today in our small groups, going deep together, using the groups as a doorway to understanding the universality of dukkha, of suffering, of understanding both the personal, unique, particular expressions of our humanness and the impersonal element, the element that's universal, that it's not just personal. How well our stories differ and our conditions differ and our circumstances in life differ, we start to see how With each person, that intimacy of mindful, compassionate presence shifts. Even the most frightening suffering, it shifts, and it starts to reveal some of its teaching. One person said, I thought I had to get over it. Their great sorrow. They were talking about their great sorrow. I thought I had to get over it. I kept feeling despair that it was still here after all these years. And now I see that it's part of the dance of joy and sorrow. A friend of mine, her husband was in the hospital, and uh, we were talking about, yes, the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. And then we were saying, but couldn't it be maybe 20,000 joys? And 5,000 sorrows? You know, why does it have to be 10,000 of each? But this just seems to be the way it is. Hafiz says, don't surrender whatever it is. He says your loneliness, but it could be your grief, your sorrow, your hate, your despair, your rage, whatever it is that you'd like to get rid of. Don't surrender your loneliness so quickly. Let it cut more deep. In other words, feel it more intensely. Let it ferment and season you as few as few human or even divine ingredients can. And then he goes on and he says, something missing in my heart tonight. Now this is important. He's not talking about something he has. He's talking about something missing some sense of incompleteness, of it's not quite right, of longing, of we know this feeling. He's saying, but he's saying something interesting. He's saying, something missing in my heart tonight has made my eyes so soft, my voice so tender, my need of, he says, God, but we know we can say metta, love, compassion, so absolutely clear. Again, I love this because what is it that softened and opened and made him, you know, his heart so open and so vulnerable? You know, it was being present with something difficult, something missing something so human. And he communicates this loving, uh, caring feeling, and it's this loving, caring attentiveness that gives us the courage to come so close to experience, even the experiences we most wish we could turn away from then we become the embodiment of those magnificent beings, Chen Chenrezig, Avalokiteshwara, Kuan Yin, Kuan Zenbosao, They're not, you know, somewhere out there or up there in the sky. I mean, maybe they are, but that's not where we find them. We find them here in our own hearts when we can, muster enough presence to come close enough to our experience. Uh, And when we can have some moments, you know, the hindrances are just trying to protect our hearts. They're misguided attempts, you know, to defend and protect. Um, And so our willingness to come so close to experiences that we might have spent our whole life trying to avoid. Uh, this ability to be present with experience as it's happening is called mindfulness, of course. And mindfulness is a form of compassionate presence. The kind of attention that we're learning here in these really simple, prosaic, you know, the donkey ways, it's actually a form of love. This is from the Sargadatta He says, by shifting the focus of attention, I become the very thing I look at and experience the kind of consciousness it has. So he's talking about empathy. By shifting the focus of attention, I become the very thing I look at and experience the kind of consciousness it has. I become the interior witness of the thing. And this capacity to shift the focal point of consciousness, I call love. So, my understanding of what he's talking about here is that it's exactly what we're trying to do. I like to express it in a lot of different words, because you'll hear it this way, and you'll hear it that way, and I might get it another way. Um, becoming the interior witness of our own being, shifting the focal point of consciousness. Usually this focal point of consciousness, it's like maybe it's located in here and it's looking at things out there from the prison that Robert spoke so eloquently about and that Wes called the I, me, mine that they were trapped in. So looking from here, out there and we objectify everything that's out there but then we apply that same kind of gaze to ourselves and we objectify our own experience and we call it pretty negative names and um, and we aren't experiencing from within the body is a perfect example right we objectify we call it it we measure it we weigh it we dress it we clothe it We look in the mirror at it. Catastrophe. Don't do it. But we do anyway. And, you know, now being this age, I remember looking in the mirror at my body when I was 13, 14, 15. And all I did was find fault with it. I mean, that's a teenager's job, right? But looking back, you know. Oh, my gosh, it was so beautiful. (laughs) 16, 17, 18. What did I see? My thighs are too small. I have no hips. I have the... You know what I mean? We do this. Looking back from here, let me tell you something. Appreciate it while you have it. (laughs) Um, Don't objectify and look at it. Become the interior witness of the thing. Understand how it feels to be this. And it felt fine. It feels fine. Uh, today in the yurt, Spring said something very sweet to me. She said, I just one thing I really admire about you is some, she said something about uh, being graceful with aging. And I said, aging? <laughs> <laughs> what (laughs) you know the interior witness doesn't feel old has no age it's timeless truly timeless as long as we're alive right it's timeless so nisargadatta is trying to say it's just a shift in focus You know, from looking out at to becoming so close to that compassion, empathy, you know, love, whatever we want to call it. It arises naturally, spontaneously. It's our birthright to feel this joy, joie de vivre, the French call it. Just the joy of being alive. When the heart is open like this, it is compassion is love and all the hindrances come up because we don't want to experience what's there because we don't see it as a vehicle for love you know how could it be it seems so horrible whatever that it is Um, so the work we do here in retreat is to open to our own suffering To do the last thing that the rational ego mind wants to do. To acknowledge that our experience doesn't have to obey us. That we can't control it anyway, even though that's what we spend most of our time trying to do. And it's paradoxical because we long to free the heart from our demons and experience life. Full on, fully. We do want this. That's why we come here, you know, and and yet we get stuck. Stuck in a moment. And you can't get out. I wanted to sing it and then I thought, no, it'll just go through your minds over and over again. That song, it's been going through mine. Um, no, don't hum it. Uh, even. It's not a bad tune. Um, so... To develop this kind of compassionate presence is uh, it's something that we do in the following ways. And I'm going to just name an acronym that many of you know. It's called RAIN. And it has to do with, it's about, it's usually taught in the context of working with difficult emotion. But since it's difficult emotion, it usually prevents us from being compassionately present with ourselves and others i'm just going to very briefly name these steps and use them as a loose structure for the rest of the talk uh, first are recognize from being mindful just what we've been talking about recognizing what's appeared in your consciousness or in your heart and not being so caught in the ideal of being a spiritual person, which of course we all are, or we wouldn't be here, that we are afraid to name and recognize experiences like hate, or rage, or, well, lust, things like that. Just realizing the price of gold goes up and down, it doesn't matter. The gold is our willingness to be aware of what's so. To recognize, to accept and allow, as Roger as um, excuse me, Robert talked about the first night, to that's the A R A To investigate, to look deeply, not to analyze or interpret or fix, but just to look deeply. And then the N is about our true nature it's about not identifying so personally with experience recognizing what's here is sometimes not so easy because often our feelings are hidden and you've probably discovered this already our feelings can be hidden by these repetitive thought loops and they just come round and round and round and round and Eventually, you learn with experience, you learn that you can drop underneath and feel what's there. You can feel the emotion that's fueling them. And the paradoxical part, again, is so counterintuitive. It's actually easier to just feel what we're defending ourselves against than to be caught in the defenses that are supposedly designed to protect us. It's counterintuitive, but it's true. As Wes said last night, that kind of obsessive planning, you know, it can mask fear or anxiety. But sometimes when we learn how to just drop into the felt sense of fear in the body, it's like this. It feels like the heart racing, the palms sweating, the um, unpleasant, tingly sensation, the shallow breathing. And yet, being present with this emotion, just being with it, and it's just what it is, and our fear of it vanishes. So we can feel, we can recognize intense emotion and feel it in the body without pushing for it to go away, but just fully embodying it, becoming it, as Nisargadatta says. But he's not talking about getting lost in it, becoming lost in it. He's talking about being that intimate with it, getting that close to the experience. And this way of being with experience is profoundly healing. And again, another paradox, we can't approach experience wanting to fix it and cure it. All we have to do, though, is care about it, care enough to be present with it. And something transforms. The heart transforms and then even in that transforming we begin to see how the emotions themselves can be a bridge connecting us to the ability to let them go to dissolve into this pure emptiness of compassionate presence and some of you have experienced this in your groups that the personal this way connect it's a bridge to the universal it's not wallowing it's not indulging a friend of mine made a tape it was the day of audio tapes this was back in Cambridge Massachusetts and her dad was one of the most famous um, therapists in Cambridge and she's a young friend and she made a tape that she called music to wallow by (laughs) and every time you have a boyfriend would break up with her. Or she would just play her tape of music to wallow by. And it had pac Canon Cannon and all these sort of very tear-jerking, beautiful pieces of music on it. And, you know, you would hear that music playing over and over, and you would know that Alex um, was going through something. <laughs> uh, so we go through things, you know, but we go through them here in a special way, a way that connects us to something that is bigger than our personal suffering. And so we're not wallowing, we're not indulging when we come close and we care and we bring attention and we take the time and we take nine days to do this. Um, You know, we're really connecting to a more boundless, universal uh, dimension of our being to all human life. And how are we doing it just through being aware right now what's happening in the body? The palm is, well, my palms aren't sweating, but I'm actually pretty comfortable right now. But but just noting whatever's happening in your body. And hopefully you're pretty comfortable right now. But can you stay with whatever's happening when it's not so comfortable? So that tip I was giving you, you know, that it took me so long to understand in my practice that what's happening doesn't really matter. It goes even further than that because not only does it not matter, but the content of what's happening, no matter what it is, you know, the content of the moment, what's going on in that moment, no matter what it is, is your awakening. It's. You're awakening when you're present with it. Literally, you are awakening to what's true. So just letting a feeling emerge and being with that, with the intention to understand it rather than to judge it, to have some caring about it rather than trying to make it, you know, fix, cure, go away. Um, This is our awakening. And this is the power of naming experience, of telling ourselves the truth, of practicing that second precept of not not only not stealing, we're, no, I'm sorry, not lying, uh, the third one, maybe it's the fourth, it doesn't matter, not only are we not lying, we are telling ourselves the truth of what's happening, we're being honest, it takes so much courage, and then we're naming it, we're telling ourselves, okay, this is my famous New Yorker cartoon, some of you may have heard it before. I don't have it to show you, but I I will describe it to you. Um, The picture is of two big snails, and they're talking to each other. And then they're looking off to the side at a shape. It's the same shape as a snail, but it's very clearly a scotch tape dispenser. (laughs) And the two snails One's talking and one's listening. And the one snail says, I know it's a tape dispenser, but I love her anyway. (laughs) So this is the power of naming. Maybe we can't stop ourselves from marrying a tape dispenser, but we at least know what we're doing, right? Is that better? I think so. So, for 25 years, this was on the wall of my therapy office in Cambridge. This is a quote also from Nisargadatta, and it's what we're doing here. By being with ourselves in alert attention, by observing ourselves with the intention to understand rather than to judge in full acceptance of whatever may emerge simply because it is there. That's huge. Simply because it is there. We have to make some kind of relationship with it. It's here. So what kind are we going to make in full acceptance of whatever may emerge simply because it is there. We allow the deep, to come to the surface and enrich our life and consciousness with its captive energies. This is a great work of awareness. So as we do this great work, we begin to develop the clarity, the calm, the kindness. We calm down. We release ourselves from the grip of the past and the future. And we're present. What's so great about the present moment? Why do we revere the present moment in this practice? Somebody, you can guess. It's all there is. It's all there is. It's all we've got. And and something else about it. Anybody? Yeah, it's reality. Yeah, it's the only place where we can choose to do something different. It's the only moment where transformation can take place. So we do, we really revere the present moment, this only moment. And we begin to develop the capacity to inhabit it, to live here, more and more moments. Of the day. And you can notice this already. And we begin to abandon ourselves and our presence less and less. And the presence starts to become more and more our default setting. And this is truly something you can count on. So we abandon ourselves less, we stay with ourselves more, and then we start to forgive ourselves for being imperfect. For being a human being, we forgive and allow ourselves our humanness. The great Zen master, Joshu Shu, in China, um, a monk asked the Zen master, forget it, it didn't have to be a monk. It was one of you. You could travel back in time. He's alive this moment. The truth of these teachings are so alive. So a question, another great question from a student. Why do we stumble on level ground? Why, why, when we come here longing for freedom, longing for love, do we find ourselves caught inside a mobile again, caught in the same pattern, you know, caught, why? The ground at Spirit Rock, although the hills are steep, the ground is made so level for us. We have this incredible staff attending to all our needs, this building, this delicious food, these, you know, great teachers, these wonderful companions on the way. We have level ground, but we're still tripping around and stumbling all day long, crashing into each other in various ways, right? so. The question to Joshu is, why? And his answer, I love his answer. He said, it's only because, only, it's only because the heart runs wild. I mean, that's the first noble truth. The heart runs wild. It can't be helped. There is this kind of suffering. And so are we going to forgive ourselves? As West says, we're not our fault. The heart runs wild. It's what it does. It's one of the things it does. It's luckily, not the only thing. One Rinpoche said, all human suffering is caused by holding our holding the past against each other. I'm just trying to see how far we have to go and how much time we have to go there. So we develop this compassionate presence um, through being held in compassionate presence. Just like this is how, uh, if you ever read the great British psychoanalyst and pediatrician, D.W. Winnicott, wrote a beautiful paper called on the capacity to be alone. And he describes how we learn to be alone with ourselves, to be good company for ourselves, and to be able to be alone you know, in solitude. Not, he's not talking about being you know, in condemned isolation and despair and so forth. And he's saying, you know, it's so simple. It's not easy, of course, but it's so simple. The baby learns by being held through all its emotional storms by a parent. And the parent doesn't have to be perfect. I mean, Ed Tronix, um, he's a, at the Boston Psychoanalytic Institute. He did research. I don't know how they determined this, but it was from these tapes of infant parent dyads where they could um, break down into microseconds, the moments of attunement, You know, the moments of meeting and communicating or missing. and And what they determined is that It really only has to be 30% of the time that that baby is met by the parent uh, for the baby to be healthy and feel held and seen and so forth. That's encouraging for us, for our babies, our inner babies too. Um, But it's through that holding in compassionate presence. And I say it doesn't have to be perfect because we aren't. No one is present 24-7 with anybody. and. So no parent, but all they had to do was not when we cried, go, "Ah," and drop us. You know, they just had to keep holding us. And so they did that, right? So we need to do this with ourselves and, um, and we are, we are. This is from Theodore Rethke. I love, um, This poem is about this kind of accompaniment with attentiveness. He says, "Um, at Woodlawn, I heard the dead cry. I was lulled by the slamming of iron, a slow drip over stones. Toads brooding wells. All the leaves stuck out their tongues. I shook the softening chalk of my bones, saying, snail, snail. Blister me forward. Bird, soft sigh me home. Worm, be with me. This is my hard time. So this is sometimes our hard time. That bad, like dying. And then the recognition, the acceptance the willingness to look deeply and see it. This is, in Zen they say, acceptance is the gateless gate. Gateless because it's invisible, you can't see it. But you can feel that shift, that liminal shift. When you cross that space, it's a movement, a shift in the mind and heart. And it's unmistakable. It's the difference between, you know, samsara and nirvana. It's the difference between being lost and caught in our suffering and being present with it in a whole different way. From Rilke, I love the dark hours of my being. In which my senses drop into the deep. I've found in them, as in old letters, my private life that has already lived through. And become wide and powerful now, like legends. And then I know there is room in me for a second huge and timeless life. And that's what we're doing here, making room in the heart, creating that space between the skull and the brain, that space for that shift to happen, where we really do discover our huge and timeless (laughs) life. So, I'll tell you one more little story. Um, years ago, I was going through my hard time, really difficult time, a divorce. I was heartbroken. And I hadn't seen my Zen teacher, Desan Sunim, for quite a few years. And he was the teacher of my former husband and my first teacher. And we had done lots of practice. I mean, he knew us both really well. And so some uh, of the old students and his monastics were meeting him for lunch at a Korean restaurant in Cambridge. And we were sitting and waiting for the table. And uh, I was sitting sitting next to him on this red Naugahyde bench in the restaurant. And he took my hand and he was holding my hand and I just had tears pouring down my face. And he said it so softly, I barely heard it. He just whispered under his breath with his big warm hand holding my hand. He just said, W E A T H E R. He said, weather. And I almost didn't hear it. But then I smiled, like smiling through the tears, of course, you know, that perspective, that perspective from his perspective, that huge and timeless perspective, quite impersonal, the waves of emotion that. They're just that, really, like weather, like the rainstorms that have come and blown across these hills. And what a relief to see it that way. That it's not just about me, it's about me. But it's also like the weather. It's a relief. Here's a poem about that relief. And I'm coming to the end. It's from Mary Oliver. She says, look, I want to love this world as though it's the last chance I'm ever going to have to be alive and know it. Sometimes in late summer, I won't touch anything, not the flowers, not the blackberries brimming in the thickets. I won't drink from the pond. I won't name the birds or the trees. I won't whisper my own name. One morning, the fox came down the hill, glittering and confident and didn't see me. Mm -hmm. See, she was so quiet. She wasn't touching anything. She wasn't even naming anything. She was so quiet. The fox came down the hill, glittering and confident and didn't see me. And I thought, so this is the world. I'm not in it. It's Beautiful. Yeah. See, by shifting the focus of attention, she became so quiet. She became the fox. She became the very thing she was looking at. And she experienced the kind of consciousness it had, not naming anything. And that capacity to shift the focal point of consciousness. It made it beautiful, just like love is beautiful. And this is the process as we practice compassionate presence. It continually begins over and over again with the emotions that arise in relation to whatever is being revealed to us. And slowly, slowly, we start, we stop reacting and we start to see, oh, this is the process of awakening. This unending process of life, something appears, something's born and then it gives way to something else and it changes and passes away and it's hugely personal and hugely impersonal at the same time. It's just what it is when we're not afraid to enter that stream fully with our whole heart and mind. And Dogen Zenji, 13th century Zen master, called this compassionate presence. He called it intimacy. He called it uh, being intimate, coming that close to experience. And I want to close with this quote from my friend, Agyoku Roshi. These are her last days as abbess of the Zen Center of Los Angeles. I haven't seen her actually for a few years. We're so busy, both of us. She said, the word for intimacy in Japanese is mitsu meaning intimate or secret. What is the secret? What is the secret? The secret is that you are living the life of Buddha. The Buddha knows this already, but you may not fully know this. As you wake up, you are let in on the Buddha's secret. Your original nature is the same as the Buddha's nature. Thus, your practice is the same as the awakened ones. Your life is the life of the Buddhas. This is important for you to realize. You're not going to become a Buddha because you are already so. You practice because you are Buddha nature already. Not to become it, but to realize it. And this is what draws you to the practice. This is why you are here. Because you are it already. So let's sit for a moment together. May you and all beings realize your radiant true nature as compassionate presence. May you and all beings awaken to your open hearts of boundless love.